0: Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm just about to head off for a week's holiday uh, in the West Country and the West of England so um, fingers crossed it doesn't rain and it means that you won't be hearing from me for a couple of weeks but here is the roundup of last week's posts and um, I'll be back soon. So first of all links I liked, the usual Monday start Uh, The one I'd pick up there is just, I like putting up things which surprise me. And this one was a piece uh, looking at the cost of elections. And it said, countries on the African continent spend an average $4.50 per capita on elections compared to $4 in North America, Europe and Australasia. The world average is $2.10 per person. So firstly, I was surprised that African elections cost that much. Second, I was surprised at the sort of fairly narrow range that they actually, you know, aren't that different in all these different places. Um so so that was kind of uh interesting piece of research. Next I went on to the last in the current series of blogs on the Gelly Influencing Program, the Global Executive Leadership Initiative which I'm running. Um so we had I blogged about the various bits, so we had these face-to-face meetings for four days with uh, each each cohort has about twenty five senior aid people from the UN, from international NGOs, from the Red Cross Red Crescent, and from national NGOs. Um, and I blogged about those face to face meetings. We've had a blog from two of the users on what they took from it. I've had a pod. I've done put up one of the podcasts we've done. We've got loads, dozens and dozens of podcasts with various people in the aid sector and um, videos as well. And this one was the missing piece. Um, after the face-to-face, we had these online modules, online sessions, um, with a bit of reading uh, and a webinar. In this case, uh, I was running a module on analysis on how you analyze a problem and get, start the mo- going from the problem to what do we do about it? And I had seven people on this webinar um, from those you know UN and INGOs um, and Red Cross. <coughs> And it went for 90 minutes and it's very hard to get people to come because they're so so busy these people because they're quite senior but we had a really interesting uh, discussion and I just wanted to pick up some highlights. So on this whole question of using tools such as stakeholder analysis and fishbone diagrams or problem trees to unpack problems um, I asked them are these things proving useful and one participant said well I got stuck in Burkina Faso during the recent coup and we use the stakeholder map and everyday political analysis which is another of the tools to work out how to improve our security so that's what I call instant relevance others used the Einstein quote and I put this quote from Einstein if I had an hour to save the world I'd spend 59 minutes understanding the problem with their teams to get them to think hard about problems but in the comments question some killjoy came on and said that's not a real quote Einstein never said that so now I don't know what to do who do I attribute it to it's a very useful quote it stays in the mind of people but it's a killer non-fact so I'm gonna to have to think about what to do about that the second point that came up in that discussion was trust building one high-level UN official working in a really difficult autocratic environment picked up on a comment from one of their colleagues, not from one of the teachers, in the face-to-face and decided to attend the funeral of a senior trade unionist in in the country where they're working. No agenda, just showing respect. They bumped into senior government officials and religious leaders who should normally be very hard to access and in the days following three others came up and said, We saw you at the funeral and doors opened. Trust was built. So that was a really nice example of what these things can produce in, ter- in terms of peer-to-peer learning and top tips. You know. Then something which I hadn't expected but was really interesting, the discomfort of playing Machiavelli. One of the participants who previously said yes to everything decided to get more deliberate assessing requests for meetings on the likely influence of the petitioner and getting proactive on reaching out to potential private sector allies. To do this they used their social network they were working in their home country in this case not in another not in a different country so college chums or people who had left the aid sector and moved elsewhere another called this process having a wider eye but they said it's tough being so calculating especially when you're on the receiving end and you know someone has decided you're not worth talking to even worse when it's entangled with your friendship networks Then the next point and this really was a very interesting conversation intentionality versus an open mind getting very specific about the problem you want to address sorry Einstein helps you chart the path to a given decision maker especially when you can only reach them by passing through a chain of intermediaries so if you have a very specific narrow problem it's easier to, to work out how to get there even if you have to jump through several hoops it makes your intervention much more guided but that may be all too too deliberate Another was fretting to their driver about not being able to get a meeting with a senior official and the driver said oh he always takes coffee in such-and-such such a cafe so they went there and sure enough after 30 minutes the official walked in and they invited him over to join them they drank coffee for three hours and got huge amounts of Intel on the way decisions are made and why they were being frozen out so it's good to be specific, but it's also good to be completely flexible and open uh, yeah, and, and open. So we're trying to square that circle and maybe it means being deliberate in working out who to target in this case that aid official. but going with the flow being much more sort of lateral visiony about how you engage with them. Time pressure, so you know, this keeps coming up. The time to form networks is well in advance of actually needing them for anything. But time pressure is huge and other urgent things keep getting prioritised. How do you keep your bosses on board if results take five years to materialise with nothing to show for it in years one to four? And the only tip we had was report against intent. Make what you're trying to do visible, even if you haven't yet achieved it. And then a big discussion on churn. We know and this is a quote from one of the participants we know that many influencing strategies take many years to get results but we rotate out after two years and want to leave an impact smooth handovers to whoever is replacing you are essential but very rare often there's a six-month gap between someone leaving and being replaced and local players notice you people are made in china you don't last long that was one of the comments from a local official that makes local governments decision-makers etc much more transactional. They want to get stuff out of you in the short time you're there and are less willing to discuss long-term issues because they don't believe you're capable of working on that sort of timescale. If we accept that short staff rotations are unlikely to go away what can we do? Sorting out the handover system right this is basic so that incomers get up to speed right away would help. One senior UN figure in the room had had only one in-person three-week handover in 23 years of multiple postings in the humanitarian system and once someone leaves post they move on to another crisis and they've forgotten all about you. But handovers are not obvious or easy. A list of names and suggestions isn't much help even if outgoing people are willing to write them down and incomers can be bothered to read them. Relationships are built on personal chemistry not necessarily easy to hand over. So what other ways are there to improve continuity? Well, national staff and partners are both more permanent and more knowledgeable about local context. They can provide the collective memory if enabled to do so. But too often they have a wealth of experience and relationships, but can't get a seat at the table because of language or the ways of working of the aid sector. Yep, right now, every conversation seems to lead back to this question of localization. The next post was a book review stroke panel review on a, of a book called Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era. So I spoke at a launch of this book by uh, Nina Hall um, and there's a discount code if you wanna buy it at 30% off but it still costs a fortune. Uh, in, uh, the book explores a newest generation of digital advocacy organisations with professional staff. Move On was the first established in the US in 1998 And that model has now spread to over 20 countries with over 20 million supporters. In her presentation, Nina argued that the theory of change of these organisations is profoundly different to traditional advocacy outfits like Oxfam. They base their work entirely on collecting huge lists of email addresses and then asking members what they want to campaign on. And they use analytics activism, lots of A-B testing to hone subject headers and email texts to get maximum response rates. They fundraise from this email list for specific campaigns and they have a big focus on elections and a rapid response rather than long-term commitment. The campaign move on, campaign move on. They blast decision makers with emails and they either get an immediate result or they're on to the next topic. And they are multi-issue generalists rather than issue experts, as she rather kindly describes traditional NGOs, and they're member-driven versus staff-driven. So the nature of the transnational bit in the book title is interesting. These organizations have national memberships and target nation states, and they tend to avoid coordinated campaigns or directly targeting international institutions, but they do share tactics and tech. And I raised several questions on the panel or think about it afterwards. So firstly, the theory of change. Is the data analytics matched by political analysis? The other panellist, digital advocacy veteran Nat Wally, explained how on any given UK campaign, they work out which MPs matter and who they might listen to and then mobilise their database on that basis. But the underlying theory of change is still bombard the right people with lots of emails and they will change something, policy behaviours. And there's a lot of assumptions behind that that need exploration. I would, uh, What's more, there doesn't seem to be any accompanying insider strategy. It's very hard for conventional advocacy organisations to team up in some kind of insider-outsider alliance because of the speed with which these organisations move from one issue to another. Win fast or die, as someone put it. Next question, the Overton window. Because they choose their campaign topic based on response rates, these guys work in the Overton window, which is the the spectrum of ideas on public policy and social issues which are considered acceptable by... For, di- for general public discussion at any given time. Or maybe just outside nudging something into the window if they think they can quickly bring their membership with them. But they don't do visionary, lone voice in the wilderness, wilderness anything like that. Demographics and civic space. The supporter base is mainly older white women in the Global North with a few exceptions like Amanda Moby in South Africa. But shrinking civic space around the world must be making it harder to use this model elsewhere. The number of countries where decision makers are influenced by citizens' emails is sadly shrinking. E.g. the main woman trying to set up such an organisation in Colombia has had death threats. Evolution. the sector is learning and adapting in interesting ways. The initial model of uncritically following member preferences has been moderated in some organisations as staff try and shift narratives and stick with issues, even when the clicks drop off. The example given was refugees versus bees. Refugees just don't raise as much money from members as Save the Bee campaigns. But several organisations have persevered anyway because they think it's right. And increasingly, the digital organisations use their mailing lists to get members out on the streets around particular causes, not just clicking. Which leads me to the next point, which is convergence. It feels like part of a more general convergence between digital and traditional advocacy. COVID has forced many of of the traditional groups to up their game on digital campaigning even as the digital advocacy organizations start to think more long-term about how change happens. All of them are organizing in the flesh protests as well as working online. And is the business model as different as all that? Organizations like Oxfam really rely heavily on member support. It's not usually for a specific campaign but if we go too far beyond where our donors are at funding will suffer. So I came away thinking this is a valuable addition to the advocacy ecosystem with its own strengths and weaknesses. Digital advocacy works best in accountable connected democracies where short-term wins are possible. And the challenge for more traditional advocacy organisations is to find ways to join forces, combining their long-term approach and expertise with the big bangs that digital advocates can provide. And a question I did not get an answer to. How do ever tighter privacy laws like GDPR in Europe constrain this approach? For example, by not letting these organisations actually keep emails for long periods of time. I suspect life has got rather harder for them under GDPR. Last post of the week was a repost of a a nice piece on the LSE International Development blog by ID student Henry Whitelaw, agonising about voluntourism. Right. And he drew on his experience with a volunteering program in the Pacific Islands to ask whether voluntourism can facilitate meaningful development. And I like to sort of nicely written and that's sort an of honest sort of reflection on what this, on, on the pros and on the pros and cons of, of this particular kind of thing. As students of development and keen volunteers, we are repeatedly warned of the bogeyman of voluntourism, a vicious creature lurking beneath the well-meaning facade of voluntary humanitarian principles which pulls in unsuspecting students and undermines the good work that the real development practitioners are engaged in. Why can't all bloggers write that well? It's a really nice intro. But what exactly is volunteerism? Well, and is such an industry which is worth over $2.6 billion a year and sees over 1.6 million individuals volunteering every year necessarily a negative thing for international development? Volunteering abroad was something I had been keen on doing since well before beginning my Masters at the LSE. I was all set to take part in a voluntary expedition at the end of my undergrad in 2020, duly fundraising the eye-watering sums necessary to fund a project and travel halfway around the world to an island in the Pacific Ocean. The outbreak of COVID-19 postponed all projects operating in the region and closed its borders to foreign entrants until this summer. During the interim, I began my MSc in International Development and Humanitarian Emergencies at uh, the LSE, and gradually began to question the ethics surrounding my upcoming volunteering, rescheduled for June to July 2022. Was I ac- actually going to be helpful to the locals? What could I, as a student, bring to the table that they didn't have access to already? What were my own motivations for going? Was I more committed to what the local community wanted? or to my own idea, aims to build a career working in the field and getting a job in the Pacific. These thoughts are reflected in much of the academic criticisms of volunteerism. Many have asserted that volunteers, as in quotes, are not necessarily driven by goodwill and a can-do attitude, but are discerning consumers who carefully choose their field of activity and expect a fundamentally self-interested return on their investment, whether it be in the form of self-actualization, work experience, Facebook profile picture or college reference. What a cynical view. Despite my similar misgivings, I decided to maintain my committed project dates for a number of reasons, not least because the fees I had paid were non-refundable. Refreshingly honest there. It can be difficult on a student budget to take the financial hit of the moral high ground. In this case, I had not seen proof firsthand that this was an ethically compromised enterprise. I had also made plans to conduct my dissertation interviews there after the end of the project. A way of convincing myself that even if the project realised all the generic criticisms, the community might still get something worthwhile out of my being there. Hmm, a dissertation. Thank you very much. The project followed the model generally used by volunteer programmes, bringing a group of around 20 individuals together to deliver a set of project outcomes. The difference from typical volunteer programmes, which makes it volunteerism, is the payment for service element. The other volunteers and I had, whether by self-funding, fundraising or university grants, paid for the experience of volunteering. Inexperienced university students are the primary recruits, as it offers a way to see the world and give something back in exchange for a certificate and a useful extra on the CV. Clearly, the students seem to get more. Recruitment for such projects tends to leave out the specifics of what, if any, local needs are being addressed, or even whether such volunteering is actually a good idea. In our case, we weren't told until a few days before our project began, when we were already in country, what we would actually be doing or even which country we were to be, which village, sorry, we were to be volunteering in. This highlights an inherent manipulation by organisations of local communities within the model of volunteerism. It plays on the poverty of communities by presuming a need for voluntary action, communities' genuine willingness to host foreigners and engage in cross-cultural learning. All these being assumed, and particularly when the community exists in isolated areas, their limited understanding of how such organizations might operate. More often than not, both communities and volunteers are missold on the respective benefits they can gain from their projects, with communities in particular gaining little in the way of long term sustainable benefits. And this is when such projects go to plan. When they are mismanaged and disorganized, they can represent a genuine threat. To community livelihoods and their long-term development prospects. Our project was split. Half our our time was to be spent learning Pacific crafts and traditions, the other half delivering sports development to the village youths. It is clear that we gained more than the village. The project delivery was mismanaged both by the implementing partner, whose employees were invariably late, misinformed and seemed more interested in poaching impressive athletes for foreign academies than developing local sports, and by higher ups within our organisation who appeared slightly disorganised and similarly disorganised and unwilling to bridge the information gap. Had it, been for some, had it not been for some excellent team leaders, the project may, may well have failed to achieve anything. As volunteers, we didn't come away with a sense that anything in the community had been developed. The village rugby pitch, for one, was in a considerably better condition before we ever turned up. Our irritation at the disorganisation of the project and realising that we weren't exactly helping anything caused some concern among the community as they worried that our disappointment was directed at them. We tried hard to dispel this as our interactions with the villagers were the highlight of the project. Such cross-cultural confusion is an underappreciated negative of inexperienced volunteering. There were many things that we were just simply not aware of which might cause offence or in anecdotal incidents from other projects by the same implementer resulting in volunteers and villagers alike being exiled from their village. As my own experience serves to highlight, if we are to do development properly in a way that both empowers local communities to achieve their own aims and strengthens trends elsewhere in, de- in development towards localization and accountability, there must be a huge increase in regulation around volunteerism. This must set strict parameters on how voluntary organisations engage with volunteers and communities, especially when both groups have limited experience of development assistance and its many unanticipated effects. The concept behind volunteerism, bringing willing students to meet the development needs of foreign communities is a sound one, but its implementation needs far more consideration and accountability than is currently in place. So I thought that was quite a thoughtful piece by, um, uh, by um, hold on, scrolling back for the name, Henry Whitelaw, I think. Um, yep, Henry Whitelaw. Uh, I would have liked more detail of the disaster stories, I must say, because I do love a good gossip, but otherwise I think it was a, a very thoughtful sort of um, reflection on this whole issue of volunteerism, which exercises a lot of young people. Anyway, uh, I'm off on holiday. Have a great weekend. Have a great week. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye.